Well, as I said before, last week we took a look uh, at the idea of the value of the soul and we emphasized the exceeding greatness of, of your soul and the, and the inexpressible value that it has. And I hope and I pray that in this past week you gave some attention to your soul. I hope you're here this morning not having spent more time in the preparation of your outward body than you have in the preparation of your soul. Even as we were, uh, even as we were in our uh, place in our service when we were uh, giving time to reflect on the sins that we have committed, and there we were in a sh- with a short time of silence. I thought to myself, well, here I am again at the, at the time of having to confess my sins before God. And have I rightly prepared my heart to do so? You've heard me say this before. How can we confess in moments sins that have repercussions for eternity for those who are unsaved? And so again, the, the preparation of our soul was very, very important. The value of your soul is very, very important. And that was the emphasis that was made last week. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I hope and I pray you understand the value of your soul. We saw something as to why the soul was valuable. Again, the soul comes to us immediately, directly from God. We read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. This idea that the soul was meant to live, once the soul is created, it never ceases. There is an eternity that awaits the soul, an eternity of either bliss or an eternity of torment. Oh, the value of your soul, you see, we've emphasized this. And so again, we, 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 we will be moving here. And again, our Lord Jesus Christ uh, speaks about the idea of not being ashamed of him and his coming uh, in that same passage there in, in, uh, in Mark chapter 8. What we're going to do today here is we're going to move on uh, from the, uh, the value of the soul and the emphasis that our Lord Jesus Christ gives. And now we're going to see again our Lord emphasizing the fact that he indeed shall be seen in all of his glory. And that's what that first verse of the ninth chapter is really all about. Our Lord Jesus Christ is making this emphasis again that the Lord Jesus that, 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 that there were some who were standing there that would not see death until they had seen the Lord in his glory. We're going to take a look at what that means. But all of this is going to revolve around the event that we know as the Transfiguration. And what we're going to see about the Transfiguration are primarily three things. We're going to see that the Transfiguration is a glimpse of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ which at the time in which he lived on this earth was veiled in humanity. Again, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hell, the incarnate deity. We're going to see again something of, the, uh, something of the majesty and something of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ shining through the veil of flesh so that the transfiguration will be a foreshadowing of his glory. The second thing we're going to see by way of the transfiguration is that the transfiguration we're going to see is a revelation that Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. When Moses and Elijah appear on the mount, this is an indication that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills everything that they taught. We even had that in the first reading of the scripture. You remember there uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1 where the prophets inquired uh, to look into the things of Christ. I really believe that on that mount of transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah showed up, It wasn't that they might inform Christ. I believe that they were being taught in the school of Christ by way of Christ as the great prophet. We'll develop that. Then thirdly, we're going to see that the transfiguration is that opportunity wherein the Father once again gets to speak 
in glorious terms about his son. Oh, how the father loves to speak about his son. And what does the father say? Once again, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the second time this occurs in the gospel of Mark. We might say it this way. When the father opens his mouth, what do we hear? We hear the, we hear the name of Jesus, the, the name of his son on his lips. It's a wonderful thing. And so we're going to see this, instru- this, uh, uh, this, uh, this proclamation uh, that the father gives. So that's what we'll do. We'll work all the way through uh, these passages and we'll bring out those three points. But again, as we often do, uh, the first thing I want to bring to your attention is, as I said before, uh, the idea of the transfiguration itself. Notice what we have here in verses 1 and 2. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death until they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days uh, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Well, what's interesting here in this passage of Scripture, as I said before, there are many who, when they engage this passage of Scripture, bring to our attention a question which arises at this point. Why was not verse 1 put at the end of chapter 8? Now, all this might sound very academic to you and uh, seem to have no connection to what we're doing today. But one of the things you have to realize in my responsibility to expound the Scripture to you, I have to at least make you aware of these things, these questions that are oftentimes asked. And the reason why the question is asked Uh, why verse 1 is here and not at the end of chapter 8 is because of the close connection with the idea of glory. Look here at verse uh, 38 of of Mark chapter 8. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man shall be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And he said unto them, you see, many commentators believe that that verse 1 should be right immediately at the end of verse 30, uh, 38, so that the context of verse 1 in the mind of many is with the 8th chapter and not with the ninth chapter. Be that as it may, if I can say this, be that as it may, whatever is happening there at the end of the 8th chapter is very closely connected with the ninth chapter for a number of reasons. Not only because it's a mere six days, about a week after uh, the things of chapter 8 had taken place, but also because of what it's going to mean by way of the transfiguration being a manifestation of this glory that Christ was speaking about. The other thing that comes up with this question in verse 1 is when our Lord says, again in verse 1, there be some that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Oftentimes, most often, we read those words and we think this is a reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a reference to his coming with, his, uh, with the holy angels and his father's glory. And we see here in our minds something by way of, okay, this is going to be a reference to there are people there that are not going to die. Could this be speaking of a future generation or is Jesus speaking of the present generation? Well, what I want you to see from this passage of scripture is that when our Lord speaks about the kingdom of God coming in power, even though it's closely related to the second coming that we see in Mark 8, verse 38, the concept of the kingdom of God coming in power is developed for us, not in the event of the second coming, but in the event of the transfiguration. So that the transfiguration is an unveiling of the glory and the power of the kingdom of God 
present in the King, Jesus Christ. And so what we'll do, as I said before, we'll work through that. But this brings us to the question of the transfiguration itself. What is this thing that we call the transfiguration? Well, of course, you know why we call it the transfiguration. Look at verse 2 there at the end of verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. Well, the transfiguration, what is this? Well, if I were to have to give you a formal definition of the transfiguration, I would define it or describe it along these terms. I would say the following. Uh, The transfiguration of our Lord is that event in the life of Jesus Christ when he is the eternal son of God, existing as true man, is so changed in his outward appearance that something of his, something of his eternal and essential glory is visible to Peter, James, and John. There is, if I can say it this way, a flashing through of the glory that inherently is his. You remember the whole emphasis on uh, the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is that he came in humility. Again, he, he takes upon himself a human nature of the one, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who exists eternally as God's own Son, co-essential and co-equal with the Father. Oftentimes, I, I, I like to illustrate it something along these lines. Uh, those of us who are parents and we have children, our children are distinct from us as persons, but they are equal to us by way of nature. They're no, they're no less human than we are. They're no more human than we are. They share in the essential nature of humanness. And so in some small way, again, we see that the, that the Son shares in the same essential nature as the Father. He is God of God, as the old creed tells us. And so this Lord Jesus Christ now, when he comes in, into, in, into the world to do the work of redemption, he takes upon himself a human nature in order that in that human nature he might fulfill all the, all the law of God on our behalf, so that in that human nature he might bear the sin that my sins and your sins deserve. It's oftentimes referred to as a state of humiliation. So we're coming into the, what we know as the Christmas season, and we'll have to talk about the Incarnation. And one of the ways that the Incarnation is oftentimes described begins like this. The Incarnation is that act, or that act in time or that event wherein the eternal Son of God in humility comes and takes on a human nature. You see, for, for, the, for the Son of God to take to himself a human nature is an act of humiliation. And so when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh, we speak about Christ in his humiliation, in his humble estate. On the Mount of Transfiguration, something happens. Something to give a a foreshadowing and something to give an unveiling of of his essential and eternal glory. Something happens in that moment in order that they might have fulfilled in them the very words that Jesus spoke. There are some standing here, Peter, James, and John, that shall not taste of death until they see the kingdom in power. And what is the kingdom in power? It's the presence of Jesus Christ himself. And so when we talk about, when we talk about again, the, uh, the transfiguration, it's all about the unveiling, the glimpsing of our Lord in his essential glory. It's a wonderful thing to behold. When we talk about our Lord in, in this way, what we see, a number, we see again a, a number of things. So oftentimes uh, we've got to bring multiple things to bear. But what we see here in the, in the, in the context of, of, uh, of, of Mark's gospel here, remember what we just had in the 8th chapter before the Lord spoke about the value of the soul? Remember what, was, what we discussed before that? Remember it was the confession of Peter. What does Peter say? Peter says, again, Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? 
And remember, we press that question upon each and every one of us. Who do you say? The, who is Jesus to you? You see, remember, we press that. And, 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 and Peter makes the, the response. And what does he say? Thou art the Christ. Well, the transfiguration is the confirmation of Peter's confession. There's a sense in which the Lord Jesus Christ is, again, validating what Peter said. Thou art the Christ. And he makes the fact known by way of this transfiguration. The other thing that we see, and this will become very important, the transfiguration, as I said before, is one of the most essential elements of the earthly life of our Lord Jesus Christ. You really can't understand the earthly life of our Lord Jesus Christ apart from, well, obviously his birth, but also his presentation at the temple, his baptism, especially his temptation, his transfiguration as well. It's one, it's, it's one of those markers in the life of Christ that must be there if we're going to understand who and what he is. And what's interesting is that as in the baptism... We had the descent of the Spirit of God and the voice of the Father. We see something of that same thing in the transfiguration. Many commentators have, have made reference to the fact that the cloud that was there may have something to do with the presence of the Spirit of God, the voice of the Father speaking once again, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so what we have now is this, as the baptism prepared our Lord Jesus Christ for the first phase of his earthly ministry, when he lived in accordance with the will of God, fulfilling the law of God on our behalf, now the transfiguration in a sense is a preparation for the second phase of his ministry when he's about ready to go to the cross. And you remember, this is where the focus is turned now. Peter makes the great confession, and what does Jesus say? He, he goes on to say how that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be crucified and then be raised the third day. And so at this point in our Lord's earthly ministry, the transfiguration is, is forming something of a hinge. And now we are seeing his face being set toward Jerusalem. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a wonderful thing to see. He's, he's, he's determined to do this work. This is why the Father loves him. I always do the will of the, fa of the Father. And again, we're going to see in a couple of moments uh, uh, some of these passages where we see the delight of the Father with the Son. But, but what we see here is our Lord determined to do this work. And before he sets out on this work, what does he hear once again? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I think, I think that event was, 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 was edifying to the soul of Jesus Christ. You know, we, can't, we can never hear enough, can we, of those who, who love us and are well pleased with us. Now, we don't want to be like, you know, oh, tell me how much you love me. But again, there's something to be said for this idea that the Son, as He sets out on the work of, of, being, of suffering on the cross, hears the voice of the Father once again. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so again, this transfiguration is just a very, very important point. Let me go on to say this concerning, uh, the, concerning the transfiguration. This outward manifestation of glory occurs at a pivotal time in his life and ministry. And as I said before, it confirms the confession recently made by Peter, and it manifests the and it manifests the king. I'm sorry, and it manifests this uh, this power of the coming of the kingdom that our Lord Jesus Christ was speaking of. Now, when you look at the scripture. Uh, particularly in the epistles. But when you look at the scripture throughout, what you see is basically a validation of, of, of the definition that I've set before you. And the validation would be seen along these lines. Remember we said uh, that by, by way of the transfiguration, it's the event in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ when he, existing as the eternal son of God and existing as true man. Well, again, we have this uh, spoken of by way of the apostle Paul in Galatians chapter four, verse four. 
When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. We spoke about that essential glory that he had. We see this in John chapter 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory I had with thee before the world was. We have the, the expression of, our, of, of the Apostle Paul, that great uh, passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he humbled himself. What does he do? He lays aside the independent use of his, of, of his divine attributes. He lays aside, again, the outward display of his glory. Not that he's ever apart from these things. The Lord Jesus Christ can never be, be without those, but he gives up the independent use of those things. He always possesses these things but he never uses these things to his own ends he comes as I said before in a state of obedience and humiliation and when the transfiguration occurs there's something of a flash of that essential greatness of his being that's why that's why Peter says we beheld his majesty on the mount that's why John says who was an eyewitness to these things as well in John chapter 1 verse 14 we beheld his glory the glories of the only begotten oh do you see what happens here in the transfiguration Christ is being unveiled, as it were. And all this is being done in such a way as to prepare him for that work, to cause the apostles to understand there is a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture in the person of Jesus Christ, and to command you and me to hear him rather than any other voice in our day. All the voices in our day that will tell us how to, how to live. The voices in our, day, in our day that will sway us this way or that way. And what does our Lord Jesus, and what does God the Father say? He says to you, he says to me, hear my son. And so this transfiguration and vital, vitally, vitally important. And so again, we can, we can see again the, some of the reasons, uh, some of the reasons for the transfiguration. But if I were to give you a number of bullet points as to why, as I understand the scripture, uh, why the transfiguration was necessary, I, I would say the following. As I've said before, the transfiguration is occurring right now to inaugurate the final phase of our Lord's earthly ministry. He's preparing for the cross. Secondly, as we said within the context of verse 1 of chapter 9, to give a foreshadow of the coming of the kingdom in power. When our Lord Jesus Christ manifests himself in that glory, that now again fulfills again uh, those, uh, those few disciples seeing the kingdom coming uh, in, uh, in power. Thirdly, uh, as I said also, uh, to reveal Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Uh, uh, Fourthly, uh, to have the Father's testimony uh, concerning the Son repeated. This is my beloved Son. And then I think, uh, fifthly, uh, to give a glimpse of glory before the suffering. Now, what's interesting about that is this. Normally through the Scriptures, the, the repeated flow of thought is always suffering and then glory. That's the reason why, again, we read 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning, verse 11. The scripture speaks about the sufferings of Christ and the glory that shall follow. This is always, in one sense, the great emphasis, the great uh, the prioritizing of the ideas. But it is interesting here, as our Lord prepares for his suffering, that what we have here is a reference first to his glory and then to his suffering. And again, as I said before, I think that's all uh, as an encouragement uh, to, the, uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ as he uh, determines to do his Father's will. He is not without the Father's witness. Again, that this is the Father's will for him. And there is a glory yet to be unveiled in Christ that the transfiguration is something of a foreshadowing of.
So again, forgive me for something of a, an extended uh, introduction and uh, uh, something of a, an extended definition as to what the transfiguration is. But as I said before, it's very, very important for you and I to understand not only theologically what it is, but to understand what it means in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ and to understand what it means for you and for me as well. But let's move on to the text itself now and let's consider the remainder of the text. As I said before, that the transfiguration is a revelation of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've dealt with this already, uh, but, this, it, but it's interesting, uh, again, uh, to see this, uh, to see this uh, revelation of, uh, of, uh, of, of his glory. And the passages that I've already mentioned here, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, uh, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. This is exactly what was happening. This was a, this was a forecasting of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says the same thing, again, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, when he says, uh, again, uh, uh, he speaks about the fact that we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he received from the Father honor and glory. Remember what we said just a few moments ago? This was significant in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here was our Lord Jesus Christ receiving from the Father honor and glory. This was significant. Here we have Christ in his humiliation. Here we have Christ and everything that it means to, uh, to begin to, to set his face towards Jerusalem, to take on the responsibility of suffering for my sins and for your sins. But he receives from the Father glory and honor. It was a significant event in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter goes on to say, uh, Peter goes on to say this. Again, and we, uh, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, for we, he, um, I'm, I'm sorry, in verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And again, that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing something of the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, veiled in flesh, here is our Lord. Now again, we see the flashing through of his glory. So that's, again, the transfiguration itself. Now I want to move on here now, not only from the revelation of the glory or the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to consider with me what I would call the visitation of Moses and Elijah. This is something that's consistent with every one of the uh, recorded events that we have of our Lord's uh, transfiguration. We see Moses and Elijah. And again, this is interesting because here we have Moses and Elijah appearing in such a way as to be representatives of the Old Testament scriptures. Representatives by way of what the law taught. Representatives by way of what the prophets taught. And what we see in the scripture over and over again is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It's interesting how many times uh, we, we have this in Scripture. Acts chapter 24, verse 14. Believing all things that are written in the law and the prophets. Matthew 11, verse 13. For all the law and the prophets prophesied until John. Luke 16, 24. Again, the, uh, the, that account of Lazarus uh, and the rich man and Lazarus. And, and, and what does, what does, uh, what does, uh, the, what does the Scripture say? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets. Again, these are the witnesses of God's purposes. Uh, Acts chapter 26, uh, again, we read, I witness no other things than those which Moses and the prophets say should come to pass. The emphasis, again, on the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets. Paul, again, uses the, these two uh, uh, categories of revelation in a, in a very important place in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. He says this, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So whatever the gospel is promising, it has an Old Testament witness in the law and the prophets. 
And so when we see Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, what's happening? We're seeing a fulfillment of everything that the law and the prophets spoke of. Our Lord recognized this, and our Lord spoke to this in Luke chapter 24. He says again, Luke chapter 24, verse 44, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake to you while I was yet with you, that all these things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So in this representation, in this visitation, if I can say it that way, of Moses and Elijah on the mountain, what's happening? Well, again, you have here a representation of all of Old Testament revelation being fulfilled in Christ. Now, I do think it's interesting. In the Gospel of Luke, we have the account that Moses and Elijah spoke to Jesus of his decease. Literally, it's of his exodus. And so what we have here, we have not just the fact that they were with Jesus and speaking with Jesus, but we have the content of their conversation. It's centered around the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you see, again, this is the great emphasis in the Word of God, is it not? Uh, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. But as I said earlier, and I think this is significant, I, I don't have, I, I don't have, um, I don't have other, I don't have authorities uh, to maybe uh, second me on what I'm about to say. But I do think that the discussion that was there on the Mount of Transfiguration wasn't so much Moses and Elijah instructing Jesus as to what was going to happen to him, I think it was the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to Moses and Elijah. You remember what, again, what 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, how that it said that, that the prophets inquired, the prophets were looking themselves concerning these things. And I think that what you had on that Mount of Transfiguration, I think what you had was our Lord Jesus Christ now instructing uh, these two men that were representative of all of Old Testament Scripture. Again, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 10, where we read the following, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. I really think that our Lord Jesus Christ was instructing Moses and Elijah at this point. The other thing I would say to you is this. Is it an encouraging thought to us that these, these men, Peter, James, and John, they knew Moses and Elijah. You see, again, there is a recognition of, 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 of individuals in, in heaven and in glory. There is a recognition of loved ones. And so, again, the visitation. So, again, we had the transfiguration. And by way of the transfiguration, we had an unveiling of his glory. We had the visitation of the, of, 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 uh, the representatives of the Old Testament uh, uh, scriptures, Moses uh, and Elijah. And there they were, in a sense, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Again, as I said before, I don't have any uh, authorities second, second, uh, second thing, uh, this, uh, this uh, point that I'm making. But I really believe in light of 1 Peter chapter 1 that what we're seeing here is our our Lord Jesus Christ, again, speaking in a way of instructing them, not vice versa. And the third thing I want you to see here by way of the transfiguration is the proclamation of the Father. So we would have had the transfiguration itself, we would have had the visitation, and now we have the proclamation, the proclamation of the Father himself. And notice what we have here as we go on in the passage of Scripture, in verse 7. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Now, as I said earlier, uh, some commentators believe that the cloud would be representative of the Spirit of God, uh, kind of paralleling what we see in, um, in, in, uh, in, in Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 3, at the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ, where the Spirit of God descended upon the Lord. 
And what's interesting is that, uh, and again, this is not original to me, uh, uh, one commentator said this, if indeed this represents the Spirit of God in this cloud, stop and think of what we have on that mount. In a sense, we have a wonderful picture of God in the fullness of His being, and of, of His triune being, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking and teaching, the representatives of the Old Testament and Moses and Elijah, and the representatives of the church of Jesus Christ and Peter, James, and John. What, what a congregation was gathered on that mountain. It's a wonderful thing to see. It's something in a sense of what we'll see in heaven, is it not? And so this idea of the transfiguration, again, not only again being beneficial to our Lord Jesus Christ, but having benefit for the people of God as well. But let's listen and let's take a look at this proclamation. Again, verse 7, And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Well, whenever we see this uh, phrase, uh, uh, the, the voice, uh, the, uh, this idea of the voice of the Father, we should perk up our ears, obviously. It's kind of interesting, probably about eight times in the Scripture, we read of the audible voice of God. Uh, this was something, again, I would say that was uh, unique to the, uh, uh, to the time in which Scripture uh, was being un- uh, unveiled, uh, was being revealed. I-, I don't believe that God uh, speaks in an audible voice today uh, to individuals. I'm not saying that God can't do that. I don't believe that, uh, that there's a necessity for it. We have the written word of God, and we'll get to that in a minute as to why I'm making that statement. Uh, but again, we have this, this uh, voice of the Father, the proclamation. He spoke audibly to Abraham. He spoke audibly to Moses. And it's very interesting that that God the Father says, this is my beloved son. Do you remember how Moses is referred to in the scripture? It was Moses, my servant. But now it's my beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this again emphasizes why when when we understand the voice of God to us in our day, it comes to us through the written word of God, mediated to us by the spirit of God. We also saw that the nation of Israel heard the voice of God in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Samuel heard the audible voice of God. Elijah heard the audible voice of God. John the Baptist heard the voice of God at the baptism. And of course, Peter, James, and John heard the audible voice of God. And there was that very curious uh, uh, occasion uh, in John chapter 12 when the Father speaks from heaven and the, and, and the people of, uh, of Jesus' day didn't know what to make of that voice, but Jesus knew and understood what it was uh, there in John chapter 12. And so, again, we have, our Lord, we have the, the Father speaking. Now, I do think it's very interesting, and I think it's worth noting that when we have the Father speaking, we have him speaking about his Son. I think, there's, I think that's instructive for us. I think Jesus Christ should be the theme of all of our speaking. Of course, he must be the theme of all of our preaching in one way, shape, or form. All preaching centers around Christ. It must come to Christ. It must set forth Christ. It must exalt Christ. And it's exactly what the Father is doing. And as I said before, this is the second time now in the Gospel of Mark that the Father gives this expression, this is my beloved Son. Mark chapter 1, verse 11, And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This idea of the Father loving the Son is given to us in other places as well. John chapter 3, verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John chapter 5, verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. So again, this emphasis of the Father loving the Son. 
I've often prayed uh, for myself and for our congregation uh, that in, in whatever way it's possible uh, that God might give to us uh, the same type of love and delight that the Father has for the Son. Well, again, we can't, we can't match the, the love and the delight that the Father has, but the, but the Son ought to be the delight of our souls. And there's something in the words of, our, of the Father here. He, this is my beloved Son. This speaks of his affection for the Son. And then he says, in whom I am well pleased. This is his satisfaction in the Son. And so we see on the part of the Father this exalting of his Son, this rejoicing in his Son. It's a glorious thing to think about. There is God the Father rejoicing in the Son. There is God the Father again rejoicing in what the work of the Son is. What the work of the Son is, and it's interesting because whenever we talk about the work of the Son and the Father being pleased, the Apostle Paul picks up on this as well. In Colossians chapter one, verse nineteen and twenty, Paul writes this: "It pleased the Father." You see, the work of the Son pleases the Father. It pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Fullness. Fullness? Did we ever see the fullness of the, of the Godhead dwelling in Christ? We saw a glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. You see how all these themes come rolling back in. That in him all the fullness should dwell, having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself. You see again, what is the, what is, what, why, is the, why is there this great love that the Father has for the Son, this great affection? Because there is a likeness of nature. Why is there this great satisfaction in what the Son does? Because he reconciles sinners to himself. This whole idea we're, we're coming into, I was a little, I was a little ups, not upset, but I was a little um, thinking about, well, you know, this is the, the first month of December. We normally speak about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ here, and we're going to mention it here today, here shortly. But we, we often speak about the Lord Jesus. Uh, we uh, speak about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ here. But here in this passage of Scripture, what I want you to see and understand in Colossians chapter one, the very fact, the very fact that God sent His Son in the world, conveys to us the 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 the, the, the conviction that God does not intend to leave the world unredeemed, but has sent his son in the world to save sinners. And so again, the father, again, has an affection for the son. The father has satisfaction in what the son has accomplished. And so when the father speaks from heaven, what does he speak? Who does he speak of? He speaks about the son and he speaks about his work. What should the church of Jesus Christ speak about? About the son of God and his work. This foolishness, oftentimes it goes on, this excuse for preaching that sometimes takes place that has nothing to do with Christ or Him crucified. This is, again, this is, this is exactly contrary to what the Father's commanded us. And that brings us now not only to the declaration of the Father, but now to the instruction of the Father. And we see it here, again, in this seventh verse. This is my beloved Son, hear Him. That's the command of God to you today, to hear the voice of his son. And where do you hear the voice of his son? Through his word. The spirit of God mediating the word of God to you. The spirit of God opening the word of God to you. This is how you hear the voice of God today. And so in this idea, what we have is the emphasis on hearing the son of God. This was an Old Testament reference as well. You remember the, uh, Moses, when he, when he writes in Deuteronomy 18, he speaks about a prophet that, our, that, 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 that the Lord our God shall raise up. And the concept of a prophet is, in, is very is significant here. Because what the Father does not say, although he says this in other places, the Father does not say, this is my beloved son, worship him. Now he says that in another place. In, uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, and let all the angels of God worship him. Yes, it's right and proper that you and I worship the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He, does, he, he doesn't say uh, as well, uh, 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 this is my beloved son, believe on him. He says that in another place. Jesus uh, has asked the question, uh, what should we do that we might do the works of God? You remember his answer? This is the work of God that you might believe on his son. And so again, what, what we have here is an emphasis by way of the father specifically saying that we are to hear the son. And many commentators have noted at this point that the emphasis here is on Jesus Christ as a prophet to the church. The voice that is to be heard. And as I said before, this was an emphasis even in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord thy God shall raise up a prophet unto thee from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. This idea becomes very important in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the prophet, that the church is to hear, that the world is to hear. Acts chapter 3, verse 22. For Moses truly said, again, there was Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses is speaking. Now here Christ is fulfilling all this. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your, bro- of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. Acts 23 goes on to say, uh, uh, Peter goes on to say this, And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed. Oh, you see, what is, our, what is the Father saying here? The Father is saying, you and I, we must hear the voice of the Son of God as he speaks in the church through the word of God. Christ is still the prophet of the church. The Father could have said, here, here is my beloved Son, believe on Him. He said that in another place. Here is my beloved Son, worship Him. He said that in another place. But in this place, He is speaking to the church to hear Jesus Christ as the prophet of the church. Now you see this, this, uh, uh, this, this, uh, uh, this need to hear Jesus Christ as a, as a prophet is, 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 is very, very important. Uh, And and again, what we would have to say is this, is that uh, the great responsibility that you and I have as a result of this transfiguration, as a result of this unveiling of Christ as we see it on the mount there, the responsibility that you and I have is to hear the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one one old uh, Puritan preacher had an excellent excellent observation at this point. And he, he says this, he said, This resignation of our souls to Christ as teacher and prophet, as it must be resolute, so it must be unbounded and without reserve. And what he is saying here is this, is that you and I, when we hear, this vo- when we hear the voice of the Father, you and I must determine, must determine in our souls that we will hear the voice of Jesus Christ above all other voices in the world. Not so much in the audible voice, but by way of the teaching of Scripture. That Jesus Christ is the prophet who speaks to his people, and it's his voice that we heed. And he says again, there must be, there must be a, 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 a resoluteness to this. He goes on to say this, again, this is Thomas Manton. He says this, We must submit absolutely to all that he propounds. Though some, now listen to what he says, Though some mysteries be above our reason, and some precepts against the interest and inclination of our flesh, and some promises seem to be against hope or contrary to natural probabilities, yet there must be a resolve in the mind of the people of God to hear the voice of Christ and to obey the voice of Christ and to walk by, again, the word that he has given to us. You see, this idea then of Jesus Christ as the prophet to the church is very, very essential then, uh, not only to our well-being, but to our understanding what the transfiguration is all about. And so here we are, again, observing the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the question is, the question is, have you and I been transfigured by this sight of the transfiguration? 
You see, this is one of the ways in which the word transfigure is used in the scripture. That passage of scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it talks about how that we're all transformed into his glory by beholding the Lord Jesus Christ in his word, by beholding the Lord Jesus Christ looking in this mirror and seeing Christ, we're being transformed. Are you being transformed? That Paul says, and, and again in that great passage in Romans chapter 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Is there a transformation taking place? And you see, you know, if I can say it this way, that you have beheld something of the glory of Christ on the pages of Scripture in this account of the transformation when you yourselves are being transformed by the Spirit of God working in you. I hope and I pray that it's the case for each and every one of us. So here we have then the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was a, it was a manifestation of His glory. It was a visitation of all of the Old Testament, of, of, of Moses and Elijah. It was a proclamation of the Father, that you and I ought to hear this one, the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we come to close out this sermon now, what should we do with this? How do we make applications? Well, the first thing I want you to be aware of is this. Since we are coming into the, to this time of the year when we begin to celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, I would remind you that the transfiguration gives us a glimpse into what happened at the incarnation. Remember as I said earlier? The incarnation is that act whereby the eternal Son of God and all of His majesty sets... Again, He doesn't, he doesn't do away with His eternal, uh, with His essential uh, uh, attributes. There is no diminishing in the attributes or the essential nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. He sets aside the independent exercise of them. He, he does not allow for the external glory of them to be seen. He veils Himself in flesh, but in the transfiguration there is a flashing through of that essential glory. And so what I would say uh, then is this. Again, in the transfiguration, we are reminded that the state of humiliation and suffering was a temporary state and that, we now ser- and that we now serve Him and love Him as the blessed, glorious Son of the Father who is coming again in glory to establish His kingdom on the earth. We can't get away from this. You see, the flash of glory is a reminder of the coming glory that's yet to come. And so again... As we get ready then for Christmas, for this time of the year, let us heed the command of the Father to hear the voice of Christ above every voice in the world today. And let us look to the glorious return that he has promised so oftentimes in Scripture that is yet to await his people. And so my my brothers and sisters, I I present to you on the mountain the, the transfigured Christ It is my hope and my prayer that each and every one of us will be transfigured by a vision, by a sight of Christ in that estate.